Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Cazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au. Here's today's episode. Hey guys, Mike Gore here and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little different. At Hillsong Conference in Sydney this year, we had the privilege of sitting down with some of the team from Hillsong Worship and holding a masterclass called A Worship Journey to Broken Places. It was a really special moment for us at Open Doors, and we couldn't be more thankful to Hillsong for partnering with us to share the story of the persecuted church. This episode is the audio from that masterclass. My hope is it encourages you and inspires you as we share stories of how God is building His church in some of the toughest places on the planet. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your presence that is here right now, God. Lord, we are thankful for the breath that you've put in each and every one of our lungs, God. I thank you that you've carved out this time and this space, Lord. That even before the beginning of time that you knew who would be in this room, Lord God, you knew who would be at this conference. God, you would know that you would want to speak to each and every single one of us. And we just want to say thank you for the privilege of being in your presence again. And as we take time, Lord God, to take a worship journey into broken places, Lord God, I thank you that we find you in those broken places, that we find you in the arena with tens of thousands, but we find you in the persecuted church and we find you with people who feel like they're not being seen. I thank you that you know and that you see every single one of your children and that you love them and that you've got an incredible plan for their life. We just ask and we thank you that your presence is going to lead the way over these next few moments that we share together and that we'd be enlightened and that above all else that you'd be glorified. And if you believe it, would you say amen? Amen. Come on, why don't we shout amen? Amen? Amen. Well, welcome to this incredible time that we have together and we're really excited. Are you having fun at conference so far? Oh, come on. I guess it's the afternoon or maybe the microphone wasn't working, but are you having fun at conference so far? Thank you, even if that just made me feel better about myself. I will take it. I like a good response. But hey, we're excited, and I believe that what is about to take place that we may not be ready or even expecting, but like I prayed, I believe God is about to do something incredible, and I'm so glad, we're glad that you guys have come. We're going to have an incredible conversation. So I want to invite the incredible people that we're going to have this conversation, the one and only Cassandra Langton, who is our... um, global creative pastor of Hillsong Church and we're also going to have Dean Usher who oversees our worship and creative teams for all of Victoria and Hobart and we have the one and only Brooke Ledgerwood who just landed from America and a very very special friend who we have come to know and love Mike Gore who runs Open Doors in Australia and we're going to join with him and so just for those of you that may have not heard or don't know exactly um, what Open Doors do we have a short video as our friends come and join us on the couch why don't you check out the screens we're going to find out a little bit about Open Doors right now today over 100 million Christians worldwide are harassed oppressed or killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Open Doors is positioned on the front lines, standing and strengthening persecuted Christians in countries like North Korea, where it is illegal to own a Bible or your family can be thrown in a prison camp for their beliefs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It's time to awaken to the reality of the persecuted church. In 1955, 
brother Andrew, a newly committed Christian, began smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe, behind the Iron Curtain, because he believed that everyone should have the freedom to know Jesus. He was given the scripture, Revelation 3.2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Since his first trip, Open Doors has expanded to work around the world in 60 countries, providing Bibles and training for those who need it most. We train leaders in their homeland, so they can be the light of the gospel in the darkest places. In 1981, we delivered one million Bibles to a secluded harbor in China and was described by Time Magazine as one of the boldest missionary ventures of all time. In 1985, we delivered five million pieces of literature into Latin America where thousands of youth were stirred to share their faith in Christ. 1989, we sent one million New Testament Bibles into Russia and a seven-year prayer campaign for the Soviet Union finished. 1991 marked the start of a 10-year prayer campaign for the church in the Muslim world. A believer from Egypt praying for their nation said, we don't know how to pray for little things anymore because we know that we are praying to a big God. This is what drives our work. God works in unexpected places and we see that happening all around the world. Open Doors is working in over 60 countries. Every year we deliver over 2 million Bibles and Christian literature serve over 200,000 Christians in need, train over 250,000 people, and share the stories of the persecuted church. We are a part of the body of Christ, called to the persecuted church, people of prayer, seeking to live by faith, devoted to Jesus Christ and His call, motivated solely for the glory of God. Open doors, together, we serve the persecuted church. Amazing. Hey, can we give it up for Mike and for the entire team, Open Doors, what they do? It's incredible. We have a whole bunch of the team here today. Hey, um, you're in for a treat today, and I, I, I hope you can come along with the journey. And, and we're going to discover a lot about the church and our role as the church and the power of worship and the power of worship in the persecuted church as well, which is going to be incredible. We thought as we started off, as we launched off today, we should start with the power of worship and, and what that means. And I thought, Brooke and JD, maybe, maybe we could start with you guys and we can just talk about the power of worship in your life. When we worship from our broken place and the power of that and what worship does in our life before we even get to the conversation about the persecuted church. Uh, I, you know, I love worship and I love that it has so many different contexts and so many different places and, and facets and faces. And I think um, in at least our Western world or our culture and society, um, worship, my, at least my head usually goes to a song or, a to- or the 20 minutes before a service, you know, and if we re- really want to break it down, maybe a fast song and a slow song. Anyone else feel me, hear me, relate to that? <laughs> yeah. And that is just one element of worship and and I love the power of um, you know worship inside the churches and a conference like this. But I think ultimately where worship becomes really powerful is when we understand that worship is simply a response to an encounter that we have with the God who created us, who's designed us, who has designed a purpose for us. And when we encounter that purpose, all we can do is say thank you and live the kind of lifestyle that is is grateful for that. And that isn't um, confined or constricted to an amazing atmosphere inside a congregation, but it's actually just as powerful when you hear uh, 
horrible news about the health of your child or when you, you know, life throws a circumstance or a season that you didn't expect and definitely didn't want. What I've found is worship is almost more powerful in those situations and when we can actually place our attention and be we, worship is reminding ourselves of who God is and then it takes our focus straight back onto him and his incredible plan and purpose and it, and it accesses us into God's presence. You don't want to share? Oh, I can do this. I think, you know, our, um, our feelings um, are a good thing and they're one of the ways with which we experience the world and life and the gifts God gives us and um, the challenges that we face. But our feelings aren't um, the litmus test of reality. So when we worship, we don't approach it um, hoping to feel a certain way or hoping to change our feelings, or we shouldn't, but... When we worship, we apprehend the actual reality of the kingdom of God, um, rather than um, rather than using our feelings to try and tell what's going on. Worship tells us the truth about who God is and the truth about who we are as His children, and then gives us the tool to be able to apprehend those realities and those facts as reality for us here and now. So, for me, that's what worship does. So, why do you write songs? Um. <laughs> There's a scripture in Revelation. I think we are referring to Revelation a lot <laughs> so far <laughs> during this um, this little session. Um, but there's a scripture in Revelation which um, refers to hell, and it says, um, "There, the sound of music will not be heard," which tells me that music is a language of heaven that originates from heaven that's been given to us on earth for a time, um, so that through it we might use that spiritual language to communicate and apprehend the things of the kingdom of heaven. So um, being um, having the enormous responsibility and privilege of writing music and attempting with humility and humanity to, um, to steward this language of music um, to help us connect to that pathway that God has opened up to us, to his throne room and to his presence. Um, is a great and weighty responsibility, but it's also um, putting weapons in the hands of the people of God um, because the truth of God is our sword. And when we put the word of God in our mouth through song or through... I mean, I guess you could say that through song, um, people reading scripture aloud is a beneficial and important thing to do. But I, I suspect that in the lives of most believers, they wouldn't be reading the Bible aloud as much as they're singing worship songs, perhaps. So sing, when we sing worship songs, that, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So when we're singing the Word of God, yeah. we're creating faith. When yeah. we're singing the Word of God, our spirit is awakening to the reality of who He is. When we're singing the Word of God, when we are singing these songs of worship, we are causing damage <laughs> in the best kind of way. Um, and I heard once, I don't know if I heard it or I thought it, I don't know, someone else said it, I'm sorry, I can't remember who they are, but, um, but that every attempt of the enemy um, to attack your life is to steal the glory from God, because that's what he wants, right? That's what he wanted from the beginning, that's what caused the fall. So every attempt of the enemy, every plan of the enemy is to steal glory from God. So if I'm going through a challenge or a persecution or a heartache and the enemy can steal my praise, then he wins because he's, he takes the glory that I would otherwise give to God. But if in the midst of that challenge and in the midst of that trial, if I stand up and I 
sing out the praise of God with my mouth and I give God glory, then he loses and he fails and God gets the glory and I get and apprehend the victory. Yeah. I didn't mean to drop the mic. That was so dramatic. I didn't, that was like, I wasn't trying to be like, oh, cool, heavy, revy. No. We're done. We had an agreement out the back that when we'd finished talking that we would actually drop the mic so that everybody would know. So Brooke is actually just doing that. Um, we were actually chatting before. Um, I was telling the guys last night as we stood in Tomlin's worship set, he's saying, um, the lion and the lamb, you know, how great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? And I can remember standing at my niece's funeral. She was three years old. And we as a family stood on the front row singing that song. And I didn't necessarily think God was good at all in that moment. I actually went, how the heck are we standing here? And this feels like the wrongest song to sing in this moment. And yet that worship song reminded me over and over that God is good in spite of circumstance, regardless on how I feel, what is going on in my life. The truth of that is still as true that day as it is today when everything is beautiful. And I feel like when you write worship songs, you write them for every season of life. You write them for our mountaintop experiences and you write them for the valleys and you write them as a way to help believers actually navigate themselves to God in spite of circumstance. And I was wondering if you might tell the story of the passion because that is a song that's come out of your heart and actually has a beautiful um, story behind it. Um, so, yes, there is a song called The Passion um, from our new album, There Is More. And um, when I was, let's backtrack, when I was 17 years old um, and a relatively new believer um, and was discovering the power of worship in my own life and my own broken places in my bedroom, um, I came across an amazing um, missionary worshipper who would go to some of these places and with her guitar and um, and and risk her life to lead the people that Mike um, and his amazing organization serves in worship. And she um, had written a song that she had, she had um, then gone and sent to this missionary school in a particular part of the world where every graduate knew that they were likely to go from there and be martyred. And she played me the song and then she told me the story of the story behind the song, which was of the Moravians. So some of you might have heard of the Moravians um, several centuries ago, who were a community in Herrenhut in Germany, started by a guy called Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. And um, they were, these were basically, basically revival had swept the small aristocracy in this part of the world. And all of these people were coming to faith. A prayer revival started from that, um, that little mountain village. Many, I could go on and on, but... One of the things that happened was that there were two young men who heard about um, a slave plantation on an island where the gospel had never been preached. These people had never heard the gospel. So they started investigating ways um, for them to get there, to be able to share the gospel with these people. Um, and they just came to dead end after dead end and discovered that the only way that they would be able to get there would be to sell themselves into slavery and become slaves themselves. So the story goes that as these two young men stood on the dock, well, sorry, as their family stood on the dock and these two young men boarded this boat um, in chains um, to go off and preach the gospel to these people, the boat pulled away from the shore and they turned back to their families who they didn't know if they would ever see again and they called out, we do this that the lamb may receive the reward for his suffering. Um, 
and that 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 story changed my life. Um, and that's why we do this, whatever we do, hopefully, <laughs> in this crazy life with Jesus, that the Lamb may receive the reward for His suffering, because He is worthy. And however much we have suffered, He has suffered. Ultimately, He has gone outside the camp. Um, I can't remember what the original thing was, but you see one of the uh, one of the things that I've learned with my time in the persecuted church is a worship you talk about it being a language you see for me and for the people that we've had the privilege of serving it's like this beautiful collision of the wisdom of God and the spirit of God the words that you write in obedience the the language of the gospels that you pen on paper when you go and you see them sung it is the wisdom in the obedience of people like you, Crocker, JD, your obedience to the gospel in putting those lyrics out on paper and the collision with the Spirit of God when people worship. It is the most beautiful thing you could ever see. And one believer in Central Asia said to me, reading the Bible, it is like walking hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. So can you imagine singing scriptures that allow people... I've worshipped in caves in Egypt that hold 20,000 people. I've been in underground churches, house churches in mountain sides in Central Asia, you name it, and they're singing your songs, right? It is the collision of the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God in the most beautiful of ways. And so I want to encourage you that keep the emotion, keep the passion, because it is changing lives all over the world. So I get text messages from you all the time, right? Mike and I have become text <laughs> friends. We had coffee together like maybe a few years ago. And like I grew up on the stories of Brother Andrew and the persecuted church. My mum made me mail um, pieces of scripture into Russia when it was communist bloc. And so I feel like I have a heart for this stuff because I've, I think that we have a responsibility as the Western church to care about the persecuted. I think it's really easy to get um, comfortable with where we find ourselves and to think that we're lucky that we avoid persecution. But I'm not sure that's actually how we're meant to live and I don't think it's how the people that you interact with on a daily basis live. You, like, this is where I was going to start. You send text messages and you go, hey Cass, I'm worshipping next door to, I don't even know what I'm allowed to say out loud. I'm worshipping next door to, um, no, I'm worshipping in a country where people are being persecuted by their faith. And at any moment, somebody could walk in and arrest these people or beat them for their faith. And he goes, you wouldn't understand. I say to these people, we shouldn't be singing. And they're like, it doesn't matter whether it's today or tomorrow. We will be persecuted for our faith. It's just a matter of when, but we will not pull back on worshiping God. And so I wondered if you might actually tell us some of the stories of the people that you interact with on a daily basis. No worries. And... I, um, look, one story that comes to mind was from Central Asia, and it was in a church. Central Asia is a part of the world that, that mixes the violence of Islamic extremism with the relentless pressure of communism, and they sort of come together to make faith like exceptionally difficult. And I remember we were in a church, and the, the pastor asked me to speak, and I remember I said to him, look, isn't this dangerous for you? And he thought I was talking about me, as in I was worried, and I said, no, no, I'm worried about you. And he says, Brother Mike, if they don't beat us today, they'll beat us tomorrow. But if it is today, that's okay. Just preach. And then off the back of that service, we went and met with a brother. 
He was formerly a mullah. Now within Islam, that's a very senior role. He says one day he was sitting in prayer. He says he got taken into a vision. Then he says, in this vision, there were these men in black. And he says they had six chains on me, two on my ankles, two on my wrists, one around my waist and one around my neck. And he says they started to pull me alongside this river of fire. He says it wasn't on fire, but it was boiling. And he says as I was being pulled and dragged along this river, I could hear all of these voices screaming. He sits there and he tells us, as I'm getting closer and closer and pulled further and further, he says, I hear the voice of my mother. And she calls me by name and says, don't come here. He says, in that moment, I screamed out, no. He says, all but one of the chains fell from my side. My left hand was still chained. But he says, I fell over and the six people that had the chains, they began to beat me. He says, I can still feel my bones breaking. And it was a pain like I've never felt ever before. He says, I laid on the ground in this vision and I looked up and in the distance, he says, there was a hill. And on top of that hill, he said, there was an old wooden cross. And he says, on that cross hung a man and from him, two streams flowed, one of blood and one of water. He says, I was laying down and I yelled out, save me, save me. And he says, this man, he came down from his cross. He walked over to me and he laid on top of me. The men with the chains, they began to beat him and his blood was shedding on me. This is a mullah. He says, after they beat him, this man stood up and he stumbled for five meters. He fell down and he died. And I said to him, who will save me now? He says, the men, they stopped beating me. They were trying to grab me. And he says, moments later, this man came back to life. He walked over and he grabbed me with a force like I've never felt. And the chain on my left hand just fell to the ground. And he said, I am Jesus. And I died for you. He started to lead this guy by his hand. And they walked away from the river and they came to these gates. And he says, behind it were just countless people. And he says, I turned to the Lord and I said, no matter whether I lose my life, I will spend it telling people about you. You see, you talk about the passion. You talk about the cross. Muslims are having dreams and visions right across the world. On the Syrian border, we met people, and I said, man, Muslims have a greater expectation that Jesus will answer their prayer than I do. You see, oh, we went to this church service, and the first service, it's full of Muslim background believers. The second one is full of veiled women seeking Jesus. The pastor says, whose prayer request did Jesus answer last week? Hands go up, testimony after testimony. The service finishes with pastors saying, what are your prayer requests for Jesus next week? Because not only do they have them ready to share, but they wake up with an expectation that he will have heard and answered their prayer. And for me, it was a moment I realized, man, I can't remember what I prayed for yesterday, let alone last week. But more than that, what have I ever woken up for with an expectation so great that drove me to look for the answer? You see, we are seeing mullahs, we are seeing Muslims who have a belief that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world and the one true God. And he is changing lives all over the planet. <laughs> Sorry, over. <laughs> okay. So, what can we learn from the persecuted church? Like, what's our response meant to be? What should the church in the West do? What should this room do? 
you see, one of the things about the persecuted church is I think too often people look at it as all the death and the gloom and the macabre. But I want you to know it's one of the most beautiful, hope-filled things on the planet. Because the reality is every single instance of persecution in the Bible, whether it was directed at Jesus or his followers, was only ever linked to a public profession or a public outworking of faith. The reality is 2,000 years on, nothing's changed. As an organization, if we want to stop persecution, it's easy. Just get people to stop talking about Jesus. Because the reality is wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. Our job is not to stop persecution. It's not even to stop it growing. Our job is to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can. Because the reality is there's a cost to faith. And the beautiful thing we get to do is we go where people are courageous and we say, how can we breathe life into what you're doing? So letter writing, right? Yeah. Um, a little while ago as a creative team, we went, what can we do to actually make a difference? We started to read, I don't know if you've read those verses in Amos. I wonder if I even have them. It talks about, um, in the Message Bible, it says, I hate your religious festivals. I'm sick of your conferences. Your egocentric music makes me sick. And then God says to the people, what I want is mercy, oceans of it, and justice, rivers of it. And I went, it's fantastic that we write songs because I don't think that verse is saying that we shouldn't all do conferences together. And I don't think it's saying that we shouldn't sing songs together. I think God actually loves our song. And he loves when we gather together like this. But what I think he's saying is that there's something even more. That he's not looking for us to be apathetic or lethargic as a church, but he's looking for us to be people of action. And not just to sing about him or to him, but to be moved by what he loves and what he wants. And I think he wants justice. And so as a team, we rang Mike and went, Mike, what can we do? And he went, just write letters. And I went, that's pretty simple. Like as a creative team, as a church, we can write letters. We have hundreds of creatives and we have people who like to write songs and who love words. And so one Thursday night, we all got together and we wrote letters. And we wrote maybe, I guess, a couple of hundred letters. And we delivered them to Mike's office the next day. And I can remember being overwhelmed by the text that I got back from him because he goes, Cass, what do you want me to do with these letters? Where would you like to send them to? And he started telling three stories. He said, you can send them to the Syrian refugees on the border who are without homes and without hope. And for anybody in the West to actually encourage them with a letter to tell them that they're even being thought of is the most unique gift that you could give to these people because they have no comprehension that anybody knows their plight outside of where they live. And so I went, yes, let's do that. And he goes, or there's this prison in Eritrea. No? Eritrea. Eritrea where a man was imprisoned underground, you can correct me if I'm wrong, in a four-by-four four cell, and he never saw the light of day, and he had been there for years and years and years. And all he had to do was deny Jesus, and they would have let him out. But he refused to deny Jesus because they kept putting people in his cell that were unsaved. And so as long as they kept putting unsaved people in there, he refused to deny his faith because people needed to hear the gospel. He said, oh, we could send them to this woman. And her husband was martyred for his faith and she's been left with 12 children. And I remember sitting there feeling so overwhelmed by the need going, hold on, we need to write more letters because there is more need. And it's such a simple thing to do, but it is powerful, right? Absolutely. We have a photo here 
of a couple of women in a refugee camp. If we can cut to that, if we ever have it. These two women, and uh, Cass doesn't know the answer to this or this story yet, but last year I had the privilege of delivering the notes that you guys wrote on team night to uh, people down on the Syrian border. The two women you see in this photo are two people who received the letter. They are Muslim. And the morning that we arrived in this camp, the army turned up, grabbed each of their husbands and beat them up in front of their kids. They threw them in the back of a van and they drove off with them. I remember sitting in their tent and asking, where's your husband? I don't know. How can you reach him? I can't. When is he coming back? He may not be. Hearing these stories firsthand, and you can see even there the look of just anguish and pain on her face. Well, as we're leaving this camp, I was able to deliver them your letters. You heard the story about a church service full of Muslim women, veiled women seeking Jesus. They're part of it. They're people who are part of an open doors Bible study. And just about 10 days ago, I was back in the Syrian border and got to meet the person I delivered the letters to. And she said, Mike, they loved them. She said, they're Muslim and they're reading these letters from Christians in your country, telling them they love for them and that they pray them, pray for them. And they just said it was an absolutely incredible inspiration for them on a day where they had lost almost everything. Letters, words, to us it seems like nothing. To others, even Muslims, they bring life. Um, so today we've set up a letter writing station down the back, right? And I don't know if you have it in your heart to do it, but I feel like it's really easy for maybe a thousand of us to write a letter to somebody that you don't know. And they look like this. It says, sent with love. And I'm believing that actually we would get in our hearts um, a vision for people who face persecution. And as the church in the West, we would write a letter of hope. If we delivered a thousand letters to Mike today, just imagine where they could go. Imagine what we could do together as a community to actually instill hope in people. I actually believe Jesus has called us to be hope bearers. And so a simple thing like that that costs you nothing but your time actually could change the life of a thousand people somewhere around the world. I feel like what you do, Mike, is incredible and it is an honour that you would entrust us to partner with you on this. I always say the open doors isn't the hero. The persecuted church isn't even the hero. The gospel of Jesus must always be the hero. So I really appreciate your encouragement. But man, it's out of obedience. It's out of a love for Jesus and a love for people. And so all of you today in this room, man, we're not the hero. It's that beautiful collision between the wisdom of God and the spirit of God. The words you put on the paper, the way they impact Muslims. That is the beauty of the gospel. Okay, you two. Um, somewhere at the start of the year, maybe last year, as we came up with There Is More album, we started to work on a concept of worship kits. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that together and why and how it came about and maybe share some of the stories because they're really cool. We watched the video this morning of a church in England that got a worship kit, but they don't just go to England. So for, for many years, actually, we've created these worship kits which are a resource for local church teams wherever they are to to use our songs basically so it's music charts and lyric sheets and individual like video breakdowns of how to play each part all the it's it's packed with resource and um during one of our kind of key team meetings um towards the end of last year I started we started thinking about these worship kits and asking if there was more that we could do with them you know our heart is of course to 
to build the church. And so how we, we were trying to do it with these worship kits. We were like, how there, there must be more that we can add to it or something special that we could do. And we just had it drop into our hearts that, um, you know, there one of our... Um, amazing content creators, a guy called Paul Martin, he said, you know, I grew up in a church where we had to save for five years to buy a kind of a low-grade Roland electric piano, you know. So so he said, for my little church in England where I grew up, he said that, you know, buying a worship kit would have been tough for us. And so we thought, well, there's so many churches for whom, you know, um, that amount of money is nothing, is relatively nothing, not a stretch. So we thought, what if um, for every church that buys a worship kit what if we send a worship kit to a church who register their need a church who who for that that um that resource isn't necessarily there for them to be able to easily get it so what if we just make them available for every church who registers their their need um and then um josh olson one of our amazing brand guys connected i believe with you mike specifically so it's it's not just for the persecuted church but for for every church who registers their need but that obviously means that that's for many, many congregations in the persecuted church. So we've, through your incredible service and wisdom and strategy, been able to get worship kits into the hands of some of these congregations. Um, So if you're from a church in Ohio and you bought a worship kit for your worship team thinking it was just going to bless, you know, that congregation, actually there's a congregation in underground somewhere or in somebody's house um, who are having access to that resource because of... So you're building the church on a bunch of layers, so it's pretty fun. Yeah, sorry. I have so many words. I need to, like, have less. I'm jet-lagged. Forgive me. <laughs> How amazing is that? Um, yeah, go. Sure. So uh, as far as... I love it, Cass. Do you want to tell a story? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so <laughs> we've had the privilege of being able to deliver some of those worship kits to churches in Syria, uh, in Iraq, right through Nigeria... Uh, East Africa and some countries I can't name, um, but it's it's amazing to see the way that people's eyes come to life. Right, I remember just last yeah two weeks ago being in on the Syrian border and giving one of the USB sticks to a girl, um, probably not too dissimilar to your age, and she said one of the challenges is that when ISIS came through, the first kind of people to go were the worship teams. Right, I don't know what it says about worship teams, but. You know, it's all right. Um, but one of the first people to go were worship teams. And for them, one of the most attractive things to Muslims is the music, right, and singing songs. And so some of the biggest points of stress for pastors is actually how do we have a worship band? How do we sing songs? And so with intermittent internet connection, they've been trying to sing along to YouTube things and all this sort of stuff. And so to be able to give them a worship kit that has the tracks, that has everything they need, you know, her eyes just came to life. And she says, you know, my favorite song is What a Beautiful Name. And this is a girl your age from a church in the back blocks of Syria who hears your songs, sings your songs, and walks hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. What have you come to understand about God because of this? <laughs> you know, every... It's a really, it's a pretty personal question, right? Because I, um, I've spent thirty something years following Jesus, right? And I have this great fear that the people that we serve, they know Jesus, but I know of Jesus. That's a big difference. I remember being in Central Asia just recently, and we had some slides for stories, but this is just one of those. 
and standing with a brother who was that pastor who told me about being beaten. If it's not today, it's tomorrow. And he says to me, we're standing on the side of the road in this bustling cotton market. And he looks at me and he says, what does it mean to be wise as a serpent? And I remember I said, nothing. I just didn't have an answer. And so he says, well, Mike, could the serpent hear God? And again, sort of fear of getting it wrong just rendered me silent. And he says, well, the serpent can hear God, but doesn't obey God. And when this beautiful, warm and genuine tone, he looks at me and he says, sounds a lot like you, right? He says, because the scriptures, he says they talk about the sheep and the shepherd. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they obey because they're his most valuable of possession. He says the scriptures, they also talk about the 99 and the one. Have you ever thought that you might be the one? He says, because when I look at people in your country, they claim to know God, but the moment he asks them to do something, they don't obey him. And so again, for me in my walk, it was the moment I realized I am the one. See, I'm a sheep who is treasured and valued by the shepherd, known by him. I hear his voice, but unless what he asks me is saturated in comfort, safety, and guarantee to work, I rarely listen. Whereas the people I meet in Central Asia, despite what their obedience will likely cost them, they tell me that the simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, that their greatest reward is to one day see him face to face, and that in their moments of obedience, they've become used to water being their pavement. Can you imagine being so comfortable with stepping out of the boat that the water felt like solid ground? The 99 and the 1. The question is, which one are you? And that's just one of a million lessons I could tell you. Um, I think uh, when, when I think about worship and, and the unity that brings, uh, I don't know, I've been hearing the story about open doors and these stories throughout conversations. I just keep thinking there are brothers and sisters. And how, how can we help from over here? Like the picture of unity in the church, like, that, how can we bring unity with our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church? And how can, how can, we, how can we help, man? You know, to be honest, that's one of the, the questions I probably struggle with most to really articulate. Because, you know, I've seen, a lot of, I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution. But I've seen very few survive prosperity. And I know myself, I'm in that second category. I remember being in a refugee camp in Iraq. We had arrived in northern Iraq. ISIS had just torn the place up. People were arriving on foot. Men, women, children, grandparents. I remember meeting one guy who literally just was carrying a pillow. And he says, it's all I had time to grab. That's a grandfather. But as I'm walking across this camp, there's five and a half thousand people in this camp. And whenever you're in one of those situations, you need to be kind of aware of what's happening all the time. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a guy walking up to me with real purpose. And I know in any of those places, if anyone's coming at you, you really need to be thinking what's about to happen. Anyway, this guy gets up in my face and starts talking to me in broken English. And he says, are you from Australia? I said, yeah. And he says to me, I want you to know our church, we pray for you. And I'm like, what? Don't put that on me. And he says, through all these things, he's talking about chocolate and all this sort of stuff. And we land on the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney. And he says, when that happened, our church, we stopped and we prayed for you. 
And then I remember he says, because the challenge is, in the West, you look at the body of Christ as arms, legs, fingers and toes. He says, we look at it as blood, bones, muscle and skin. He says to me, the bones, Mike, they're like the Catholics. They're rigid and you can't move them. But you take them away and the body falls to the ground. And he says, mind you, here in Iraq, when they're dying at the hands of ISIS, they're not dying because they don't deny Mary. They're dying because they don't deny Jesus. He says, the muscles, well, they're like the Anglicans. They're a little bit rigid, but you can move them a bit. He says, the blood, it's like the Pentecostals, the charismatic, free-flowing and always changing. But he says, you take away any one of those elements and the body falls to the ground. And he says, like a body fighting off wound or infection, he says, blood flow increases, muscles contract, and other parts of the body rush to that area to protect it. He said to me, the body of Christ in Iraq is hurting, and we are rushing to protect it. For me, it was a reality and the realization I'm in the body, but am I in the fight? So you ask what the church can here can do, what the body of believers here can do. We can realize persecution is part and parcel of faith. It's like the oxygen we breathe. At the tent, we're asking people simply to say, will you match a subscription in your life to the survival of the church? And more than that, I want you to choose the lowest one that will see you support us for the longest time. Spotify, Netflix, I don't really mind. Because it's not a question of money. It's a question of saying, is a church worth it? Because you see, the indisputable heavyweight of the world throughout world history, not just Christian, has been the institution of the local church when it comes to administering hope, aid, justice, safety, and relief. We have the privilege at Open Doors to go to that indisputable heavyweight in country and say, how can we breathe life into everything you do? But my biggest challenge, I believe caring for the persecuted church should be part of the DNA of every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And it makes me think that every single person in this room, man, if we can't afford 10 bucks a month in our life for the survival of the church, there's a big difference between knowing Jesus and knowing of Jesus. I have a sneaking suspicion it's the latter that makes us question whether it's worth it. So, Brookie, you wrote a song called Valentine. Tell me about it. I realised I'd never finished the other story either. I just got, <laughs> I just got like, destroyed and then lost my train of thought. The end of that is that the, the story links to the bridge which of um, the passion, which says, I give my whole life to honour this love. I'm just sticking back because it's going to haunt me for months if I don't, like, you know, close the circle. I give my whole life to honour this love. By the lamb who was slain, I'm forgiven. The sinner's saviour, crown him forever. For the lamb who was slain, he is risen. Um, so that happened. And then um, we wrote this song, um, Scotty and I, called Valentine. And um, really, um, for us as a prophetic statement for the church to sing, that the world does belong to God. Um, I um, told you guys a story about um, I was reading in Revelation again. Revelation, what? What is God saying? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to all go read Revelation. Um, but Revelation 22 um, verse one, it talks about um, the river. Uh, um, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the centre of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Um, and then it goes on to talk about um, that time and what that looks like. But I read that scripture and I randomly thought of my friend Jeremy Courtney. We had just been texting about Halloumi. And, um, and I, so I, I said, by the way, I just read this and I felt like I'm supposed to send it to you. And um, he, was, um, he sent me back immediately a picture of where he was standing. I don't know if we've got that photo. Maybe the photo. There we go. Um, and at the moment I had texted that to him, he was standing in Aleppo, um, right in the center of Syria, um, with a river flowing down the middle of the street. And um, um, I believe when we worship and when we join with our brothers and sisters in the church everywhere, including the persecuted church, that we are being canals and bearers of that river of life that flows from the throne of God and is supposed to populate earth with life, bearing crops of fruit that bear fruit, that bear life, wherever they spring up in the most unlikely places. Um, I think about our friend Sean Foyt, who um, is a worshipping missionary as well, who talks about um, going to um, do... um, He went out to do um, deliver feminine hygiene kits to... Sorry, I always get back to panty liners, whatever conversation I'm having. I don't know. They're just so useful. Anyway, um, he was his team were delivering feminine hygiene kits um, to um, to displaced people um, in a persecuted part of the world. And um, they were delivering these feminine hygiene kits, and they, were, they had prepared to give out 500, and I think something like 3,000 people showed up. And so he and his team were kind of freaking out. They're like, what are we going to do? We don't have enough for these people. They've come. And that might like sound like a small thing, feminine hygiene. If you're a woman, you know it's not a small thing. But you also know that um, you know, in some countries, not having access to simple things like that means you can't go to school, means you can't go out and collect food or water for your family. It actually has real-world consequences for the people around you, so it's a big deal. Um, so panty liners are of God, I believe. Um, but they were delivering these feminine hygiene kits. They didn't have enough. They started freaking out, not freaking out. What, what they did do actually was start worshipping. Sean was like, we have to sing. So um, one of the guys had a guitar and they just began to worship as the team were handing out these, um, these kits to the women who had come in desperate need. And I know it sounds crazy, but, um, but they kept delivering them and they, the truck never ran out. And this isn't like water or wine. This is like tampons and pads, right? Like, I'm just saying, this is going to mess with some of your theology. But so Sean was like, Sean was like, am I crazy? Is this actually happening? And so the the, the truck that they were um, unloading was covered with dust. So he went and he had a guy go, he, he said to one of his team, go in and I want you to bang on the inside of the truck from where the supplies, where we're up to with the supplies. And so the guy went on the inside, banged on the, from the inside of the truck and Sean drew a line in the dust from the outside. They handed out those kits for two hours and the line never moved. Every 10 minutes they would go and measure the line and it never moved. And the last one was handed out as the last woman got what she needed as they worshipped there. So we're not playing games when we're worshipping and we're not playing games when we're joining arms with our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church and joining with them a song of worship. 
Throughout the history of the people of God, the Psalms have been the song that join believers, not just across geography, but across generations. So when we sing and when we open our mouth and worship to God, we're not just joining with believers in the persecuted church. We're joining with Paul and Silas in prison centuries ago because worship is outside the realm of time. We're joining with the people who have gone before us in heaven, giving glory to the King of Kings. When we worship God, we are seeing things manifest in the natural that were always supposed to be from the supernatural. We are binding things and loosing things by the power of God and in the name of Jesus. So let's not get discouraged in our own lives and in what we're facing. Let's look in our own broken and persecuted places. Let's get a fresh courage to open our mouth and sing the praise of God like you never have before. I'm late to conference because three days ago I was lying in a hospital, unable to open my eyes or stand up. And I made sure that I lifted my hands and in between vomiting, I said, God, you are good all the time. And I praise you and I give you glory because you are awesome and you are loving and you are with me and I am not alone. And so open doors are here, as you know. We're going to write them letters. We're going to pray for these people. We're going to not go about our lives and not forget them. And one of the reasons that sponsorship and partnership is helpful, because the Bible is really clear that where your treasure is, your heart is also. So when God is asking us to join our hearts with his people all over the world, if we're paying $10 a month or whatever it is, I mean, that's so doable. I spend more on that in coffee and like, three hours um like like uh where your treasure is your heart is also so why don't we take a little bit of our treasure and deposit it where god's heart is so that our hearts might also be joined with his amen okay that's and so here's the deal you wrote a song called valentine (laughs) just another loop that doesn't close but i'm going to close it so a little while back brooke and scotty wrote a song called valentine and it was pretty controversial in our world because the guy who approves our theology went, I don't like the picture of Valentine. I feel like it's a brass value. But she wrote um, that Jesus was a Valentine to a broken world. And in as much as Robert Ferguson hates it, don't tell him I told you it's him. As much as he hated it, it resonated with all of us because it was a picture of God's relentless love. And it was a, a token, not even token, a symbol of his affection. And so we're going to sing that song, but on your seat today, there's a valentine, if you want to call it that. There's a card that is actually a package for open doors. And it is your ability to actually show the persecuted church our love for them. And I'm going to ask if you'd take it in your hand. And we're going to stand and we're going to worship to that song. And I'm going to believe that the Lord is going to actually speak to you right now about what you can do to actually help our brothers and sisters who find themselves in the most horrific of situations. And as we worship for ourselves, we're going to worship for them. And we're going to give it everything that we've got. And then we're going to pray for the persecuted church and then you may go. So Crocker, why don't you lead us? We're going to leave the stage. If you enjoyed this episode, and would like to hear more from us at Open Doors Live, well, we've got something in store for you because we're taking this podcast on the road. So come join us in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, or Wellington for a night of stories, worship, and prayer. I promise you, it will build and challenge your faith. You can find out more information on our website at opendoors.org.au forward slash ODL. I hope to see you all there. Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au.